Out of the 94 Best Picture winners, only one will be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. The episode gets started in just a second. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast from Backlog Banter, where us four Backlog boys try to take a look at every single Best Picture winner and determine which one of all, very many of them, over 90 of them, are the very best. And today we are looking at The King's Speech from 2010. And I can't wait to talk about this film because to me, this film is extremely similar to the film that we talked about last week, which was My Fair Lady from 1964. Very big time gap in between them, but not so much of a thematic or content gap, perhaps. But we have to talk about that. When we talk about it, My Fair Lady, if you were wondering, went at spot number 49 on our great big list. It got an average score of 6.8, but we were not all in agreement. It was not a unanimous 6.8. So I highly recommend you go check out that video to see what we all thought about that film And then, of course, wind your way right back here and listen to us talk about the king's speech. But before the king gives his speech, Abram has a featured comment from last week. Yes, we we got three comments. We're going to read the king's comment. Mm -hmm. Yes, speaking, we actually are actually going back to John Tor 11 this week. But I want to (laughs) say, Dan, you were close. But John Tor really just went above and beyond this week with three short, but three paragraphs that I want to touch on. But first, before we even do that, I want to acknowledge... Some character growth here from our newest Quest viewer, Nameless Anonymous, who writes, uh, I do apologize for my lack of spell check. <laughs> good, good. I, gave, I gave him the creator heart. I let him know it was all in good fun, but mm-hmm. we're keeping our eye on you. Now, but also now not us, really. Now, now give us a good uh, Quest <laughs> review so we can read you out properly next week. But Absolutely. Thanks for watching. Really yes. glad to have you on board. But here we go. So John Tor 11 says, So before watching MFL, I asked my sister, who I know loves the film, what it is that is so great about it. She said, Audrey Hepburn's clothes. Hmm, I guess we all take different things from movies. <laughs> what a contrast this was to Birdman, from, from the raw American Broadway scene to the stuffy English class society a century earlier. Yes, the sexism in the movie was a problem for me. I get it given the time period, but it is appalling that it wasn't addressed in 1964. And that ending was just weird. Not being a musical fan, I must say that the one thing I have appreciated in these Oscar-winning musicals is the fantasy songs I recognize. West Side Story had lots of them, but surprisingly and disappointingly, I didn't recognize a single song in this one. I've heard about this Spanish plain rain before, though. I find this hard to rate, and I suck at rating. I gave Oliver a 3.5. This is slightly better because of Audrey, so 3.8 out of 10. There you go. How oh, about that? Interesting. John Tor is, is, is he's, in ag- he's in agreement, but also disagreement with us. So that's, yeah. that's why the comments section exists. If you so feel inclined at any point... Write your thoughts down below. We love reading them. Absolutely. And you mm-hmm. might just be read aloud next time when we talk about whatever film the spin wheel gives us next. Oh, yeah. Okay. Who wants to be the king right now and give his speech? Uh, I'm going to give my king's first impressions. Uh, oh, for, sure. I think, I think we should just apply start applying the king's blank to everything we talk about in yes. this review. It's, it's the king's review, after all. Um, but the king's speech... Uh, is it's an Oscar bait movie, and it's 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 a good movie. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it. Um, but I I don't. I mean, I watched it a couple of days ago. I don't really remember that much about it already. I didn't particularly take that many notes because I I feel like it kind of hits all the bars that you want it to, and keeps keeps trucking along. And yep, that, there it is. 
Um, but it, it has no impact on me. Um, I, I don't think it is bad in, in any respect, but I, I don't think it stands out, which makes it a really underwhelming Best Picture winner for me. Um, yeah, I think the, well, I think that the King's Speech is uh, a quite a unique film. Uniquely unremarkable, that is, uh, especially in the catalog of recent Best Picture winners, because uh, I'm not super familiar with the uh, with the the lineup for the 2010s, uh, the tw- or I guess the, the 2011 uh, Oscars at that time. Um, yeah. But this has got to be one of the least inter- interesting ones there, if only because it, the social. It was a pretty was... interesting lineup. Oh, really, uh, Toy no. Story Three was nominated. Really? Black Swan, The Fighter, Winter's Bone, uh, True Grit. Yeah, 127 uh, hours. The social Very network. interesting lineup. Uh, social, uh, social network. Yeah, yeah. Saying. Um, but I mean, out of all those, the ones that you just listed, Tucker, this is just like the most like, yeah, it's a we're we're shooting for awards with this film, and they got them. You know, got to hand it to them. It is good, but if we're talking about things that are you know average, and I feel like there's a few things that lift this above that you know middling average line, but. There's not a lot, and you know I I I'm agree I'm in agreement with Tucker here. I'm sort of at a loss for things to talk about other outside of like I liked this particular thing, but not like I love it. I just kind of like yeah, that's a cool element of this film. So yeah, we'll see we'll see how it goes. But I want to hear from you two fellows over there. Mm-hmm. Abram, why don't you go first? My yeah, leash. so I just I just thank you, mm-hmm. my lady. <laughs> I I pulled up the list. God, of- we've been watching too many British movies. <laughs> oh, please no. <laughs> I, I pulled up the list of the uh, nominees from this year because I was quite curious. Mm-hmm. So we had Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, oh, 127 Hours, The Social Network, Tanner, mm-hmm. Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. So I haven't seen nearly all these films, but I have seen True Grit, Toy Story, Inception. I haven't seen Social Network. I apologize what? for that. But when I look at that run of films, I, I, I see, I, you know projects that are a lot more creative than this. And I, I tend to land where you guys did. I, I enjoyed the King's Speech. I think that there are moments here that are quite excellent. Um, and I think that the performances buoy the entire film. But yeah. for the most part, I think this movie r- reminds me a lot of like Chariots of Fire or something. Like, there is a quality <laughs> yes. floor here that we never fall below. But ultimately, like the ceiling is low, too. This is this film is very standard to me, and ultimately, on a, in a in a list, not not only a competitive year, but in a in a competitive entire catalog of Oscar Best Picture winners, this to yeah. me doesn't rise much above. Not to show my hand early, but like a like a like the six range, because ultimately, I don't see anything here that that provokes my imagination or or does anything interesting with film, and instead it feels like, yep, here's a good drama, well acted, well executed. That's where it stops. Yeah. Yeah, man, I feel like mm, I don't have anything to say because all the words have been taken from my <laughs> mouth. Uh, Abram, you used the word standard to describe this film. I'm going to go one step farther and say that it is bland. I think that the sure. King's speech is entertaining. I enjoyed it while I was watching. I wasn't bored because I do think that the drama elements do work. It is, I'm, I'm interested in see what what's going on. How do these characters interact? Um, and oh, okay, Royals. I, you know, whatever. It takes me a, too long to get invested in like British royalty as a subject to a film. But once I'm in, I'm in. And yeah, I mean, it's it's there. It was entertaining. I guess I liked the time I spent watching it. But it really didn't provoke any deeper thoughts. And I and I don't even know if I could really read into the film more and like try to pull out deeper stuff from it. 
as I'm thinking about it. Because, yeah, like a lot of these films of the best, the entire Best Picture catalog has some films that provoke some deeper thoughts. And I don't think this is one of them that does that, which, you know, I think Colin Firth's performance of King George VI is very good. His stuttering sounds very natural and sounds, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like he is the character. But beyond yeah. him, there isn't much to be interested by. And so it just kind of is a film and it is the Best Picture winner from 2011, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how it stands. Yeah. Um, I could go through the wins and noms early if we'd oh my like, God. And, and sort of shake things up, and, uh, shake things up, and, oh, cool. and maybe Quest upset, <laughs> yeah, like the twenty eleven Oscars, you know, exactly, and and maybe give a and maybe give a uh, some some inspiration for things to talk about specifically. So sure. uh, obviously, this film won Best Picture. It all uh, Colin Firth won for Best Actor in a Leading Role. Uh, Tom Hooper won for Best Director. Uh, David Seidler won for Best Original Screenplay. This film was nominated in uh, Jeffrey Rush was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Helen Bottom Carner was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Costume Design, uh, Best Original Score, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Art Direction. That's a really solid lineup it there. Is. A it lot is. A lot of nominations. Yes. Um, I think it's fair to probably start with Colin Firth. I feel like... He's probably, he's the centerpiece of this film, the titular king who uh, attempts to give a speech at multiple points. Um, Mm. But, well, no, but he's very good. I like Colin Firth in this film. He he gives a very good performance, as Timo said. The stammering is all there. I'm I'm sure that, you know, it took a long time for him to settle into that. Apparently, after the film uh, finished rapping, he did have to go to, like, he did have to get like speech therapy to get out of it because he had mm. so, he had gotten like so accustomed to talking in that way, yeah. which is really interesting. And um, I mean, if you're casting for uh, a British royalty, I mean, you can't get much better than a than stuffy Colin Firth, you know. <laughs> um, mm. But yeah, he's good, and he has a number of good scenes with Jeffrey uh, Rush, who also got nominated. Um, but uh, yeah, so, yeah. What you guys have any particular thoughts about Colin Firth? Is Bertie? Bertie. <laughs> I think I think he's quite good, uh, and I think Jeffrey Rush is quite good also. But I think yes, that they're yeah. quite exceptional together. Mm-hmm. I think when the movie was firing for me, it was when where when those two are butting heads or having their sort of camaraderie develop. Yeah, I, I I like the sort of the arc that we follow with the two of them together, and I think the the standard sequence for me in the entire film is that montage of him doing all of like the speech therapy stuff intercutting to him giving that first speech yeah yeah. Um, and so when there's a little bit of energy there and i think there's a lot of energy provided by those two incredible actors bouncing off of each other the film does have a little bit more going on because i agree i think he's quite good i think jeffrey rush is quite good i don't really have a whole lot more to praise him on other than yeah those are good performances but i think the, the sum of those parts is probably the reason that i was only asleep for maybe 15 minutes of this movie Mm, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that is a testament to the fact that this movie recognizes that its strongest element is the is the bond between uh, Al- uh, Bertie and Lionel Logue. Um, and, and I think their bond is is a centerpiece of this film. And I I do feel like maybe I find them each a little less compelling when they're on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. th- those aren't huge sequences of movie because on, on the whole we are spending time with them together the whole time and watching their bond develop. Um, surprisingly slowly because Bertie is so adverse to accepting the help of someone on a class level who is below him, which I think is where really the only clear thematic value of this film comes from is is the classism, is the divide between between the uh, 
the ruling class and, and the commoners, um, the, the Australian man, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, does not sound Australian. No, um, no, he doesn't. I wouldn't have known uh, but, unless the film pointed at it to us. <laughs> which <laughs> they do, multiple times. Um, but I, I think the fact that uh, they, both those performances are so strong, and I believe both these characters in their um, their stubbornness, their their equal stubbornness in certain ways, and Lionel's uh, knowledge of of his craft of teaching people how to speak properly yeah. and stuff like that. Like yeah. there there is a, a skill here on on both of their fronts, which I think makes this a compelling drama to watch because you're I, I was invested in both these characters and I was interested to see uh, Lionel win birdie over in these sort of things mm-hmm. you use the word Tucker because I'm on the word train believable I think these are very believable characters even King George yeah. who is he's, he's a king like I, how how am I a commoner supposed to relate to this man at all um, <laughs> and so but I think the film does an okayish a good job at bringing this together and you know the central thematic question of the film, which kind of takes our our central thematic question of My Fair Lady and totally, you know, flips it on its head, is we have this the highest class. You cannot get higher class in England than the king. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He cannot speak, and he must learn how to speak so that he can perform his roles. And so I am... I, I like seeing, like, that play out. And... I, I couldn't help but thinking about how how My Fair Lady represented this kind of stuff in the film. It's just coincidence that these two are mm-hmm. yeah. like strangely similar and right next to each other in our randomness. Um, but yeah. I, you know, I think that the moments where they are conflicting and where um, you know Bertie's class is being confronted very directly by Lionel, and he's saying, "My castle, my rules." And I, I, I just yeah. those scenes are probably the most interesting for me, and where we we get the most character back and forth, and there's antagonism, and he and he's like, "Oh, he just really doesn't want to do it," because you know Bertie, he is, he's been raised as a royal, and all of these elements. So I think that the film uses its conceit to its advantage in building these moments of dramatic tension, but. These are the only moments of dramatic tension I really feel throughout the film. We get a couple mm-hmm. where characters look at him as he gives a speech elsewhere, but I ultimately don't feel like that much beyond Lionel's office has a lot of compelling moments to him. Lionel's office yeah. is where I want to watch this movie, and when we go outside of it, minus Absolutely. the climactic speech scene, there's not a lot mm-hmm. there. Or, or where they're walking through the park. I think that's another Yes, I think there are, there are several key scenes where you know, Firth and and uh, Rush really get to be br- big British actors, and they're you know in, in like the actors, uh, ac- and when they're in um, Lionel's office, they're you know they're sh- they're sharing some dry British wit back and forth, which is quite entertaining. But then yeah, like the scene where they're walking outside, where um, I think that you know the the main crux of that argument is Lionel basically says, oh. That he, he said, can, that that the birdie can be king, and he's yes, like, that, no, that's yeah. that's slander or whatever. Yeah, the, that's a uh, you know, it's, it's treason to say that treason. my brother shouldn't be king and that I should be king. Yeah. Um, and that that you know, that's really where they get to be big and yell the top of their lungs, and it's powerful. You know, uh, it, it it basically it nearly transcends the idea of like, okay, this is their they're going for broke Oscar moments and stuff here, because I think that you know, they're, they're, the 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 connection there is genuine between these two guys, and I do. Uh, you know, like, uh, or it is uh, dramatic to see their friendship breaking down over something like this, over the clear insecurities that Birdie has as mm-hmm. uh, as a man who's stammering, and like the this idea of um, 
the idea of like the power of words and like uh, what it means to be a leader in stressful times is also interesting in this film. Um, I believe Michael Gambon's King George V uh, has an interesting line when he gets introduced that's like, kings only, you know, in the olden days, kings only needed to look strong and ride a horse down the street and stuff like that. But now we need to mm -hmm. inspire the nation and, and things of that nature. And I think that's interesting. And they they try a few more times throughout the film, like when Bertie, uh, when he becomes king, is watching footage of Hitler in Germany, you know, in the early in the late 1930s. And he's sort of recognizing these things of like, oh, the power of words is, you know, partially how Hitler rose to power. And Most certainly, uh, yeah, yeah, and that's you know, it's an interesting sort of thematic through line that I think isn't uh forefronted, it's not fully explored, but it is something that underlies this whole film, certainly. Certainly, now I'm glad you brought that up, Tanner, because I think I think the biggest problem for me with this film is the plot because I think that this is the least interesting version of this story you can possibly tell mm. at all, okay, yeah. Be because the, the I think there should have been a war movie. And I think it should have been set later because sure. when the movie that is most compelling is the scenes you're mentioning at the end when where where, oh, my God, Hitler, the literal most evil person ever mm -hmm. is this orator who is inspiring his nation. Mm -hmm. And now that nation has gone to war with us and I can't speak. I am the force of good here, but I cannot speak. And so there's a there's a real tension here that I think explores those ideas you're talking about, Tanner, in a in a much more compelling way. If you have an actual antagonist here, but there isn't. There's it just feels yeah. like here here's like the first act and the second act of what should have been a frankly longer movie that explored the the actual tensions of him mm. giving these speeches in World War II, where rhetoric and oration on both sides were so deeply important. important. Yes. Yeah. yeah you, That's man. where. I, yeah. The, yeah, the last, you, the last twenty thirty minutes of this movie, I think, are when it has actual stakes. It's, sure. it's yeah. you. You bring up a great point. I think that a lot of my disconnect from this film and why I'm not, I don't find it particularly memorable, is they don't play into the politics almost at all, which means that it feels like it's lacking uh, um, a a a weight, a gravitas, a stakes. Except for he, this this man that we're watching, who who is the king, mm -hmm. needs to learn how to speak. Like those are the stakes. But if they had put it into okay if and they you know they kind of do and it's implied that and shown a little bit that his lack of speaking might ha might lead to them not being able to take on a hitler in the war and how does he deal with that internal strife of not being that good of a leader in this day and age because he can't speak like i feel like if they had talked more about the politics throughout and we'd felt the seeds being sown of world war Two, and and then we it comes to a head and okay this speech needs to be delivered or you know even if it's i don't know how accurate this is to how britain became involved in world war Two or anything mm. but then have a moment where this speech fuels them and we see uh people listening to it as they're going into the battlefield or something like that and show the impact of this speech but as it stands the speech is obviously the focal point of the movie and we're always gearing towards that and we certainly watch it and it's the full speech and it goes on for a while but boy howdy do i remember absolutely none of it because i don't i don't know the politics of britain mm -hmm. at this time and he's saying these things that i assume is word for word the actual speech and i you know great for accuracy but in terms of that being understandable as a part of the plot it just feels like yeah someone else handed this guy this this script and he read it 
and so I have no reason to care about this speech. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Tucker. Tucker. Oh, oh sorry. Go ahead, Timo. I, you talking about the politics of England at this time of Britain makes me think about a, a, a bit of an issue I had immediately going into the film. And we ha- so we, we have this character who can't speak, but he is, and so we're supposed to be sympathetic with him. The, the film makes him out to be a sympathetic character. And yet mm-hmm. he is also the king of England. <laughs> he is the king. And yes. so, and part of that to me is like, okay, a king is an immediately unrelatable character. And we, we make mm-hmm. him relatable through this, this uh, you know, his, you know, his speech and through his inability yeah. to, to talk and his stammer. But I ultimately mm-hmm. feel like he isn't ever really realized as like a person. There's a couple moments where he's like, oh, I, I wish I could have built these biplanes, but I had to collect stamps because that's what my grandpa <laughs> wanted. And that is, you know, sure. That's probably true, but I feel like because the film, and this is, I don't know what you do about this. This is just a choice in your entire subject because the film is so centering on the royals and why I have a lot of, I grapple with films dealing with the British royals a lot is that they are unrelatable and they, they live in lives that are totally separate and totally, you know, devoid of what the common person's life looks like. And so I am not. And they they do talk about that, how neither one of them can fully understand the Mm -hmm. other's, um, uh, you know, internal struggles. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, but um, your your bringing up of the politics would raise the stakes because I don't care. I'm like, I'm like, okay, you're the king. You're like, you're the king, and you can't speak. Whatever. You're still the king. I mean, you can even though he complains about not really having any real power later in the film, bro. You still do have a lot of real power. You're still the king, and so. Mm-hmm. If we would have brought in that political element, oh, you know, Churchill has mentioned Neville Chamberlain, these other figures that I've heard of, and I kind of seen a number of times. Yeah, and and bring in that. What is the what is the implications? What do what does the House of Commons think of this? You know, they like to yell at each other. Let's get some of that in there. Let's figure out up the stakes. I think you're exactly right, Tucker, in your assessment that the stakes are a little low for this film. When Mm -hmm. I think that they could be a lot higher, and that would bring me really into the character and be like, okay, he. I got to care about this guy, not just because he stammers and I feel bad for him, but because there's all these other elements that like are really the fate of the country pushing. is in his hands. It's in his words. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, two points there relating. What to I'm the hearing things. is King's speech, darkest hour crossover film. Okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, two points there that relate to b- things that both of you said. Uh, so Timo, for, to first to your point, um, I agree that this film has a bit of an issue with uh, personalizing uh, the the royal family, uh, especially in in moments where there is a line where um, uh, Elizabeth Helen Bonham Carter uh, goes to Lionel Logue and she's like sort of you know she's pretending that she's not uh, the I don't even know what her title at the time would have been Duchess Duchess sure yeah oh, yeah the Duke lady and Duchess of, yeah good point of La- where is he from. York. 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 Yes, the Duke of York, the the Duchess of York, and she goes to Lionel Logue, and she's like sort of putting on airs that she's a that she's a a, a normal you know wealthy woman, um, and he Lionel Logue asks something like, oh, are you like indentured servants or something? Because she's being coy about what her what their position in society is. He's like, oh, are indentured servants of some kind being joking? And she's like, hmm, yes, something like that. I'm like, okay. Fuck off, first of all. You're not indentured servants. You are the royal family who has ruled over this island nation and, but might I add, an empire for hundreds and hundreds of years. So let's not say that, let's not, like, bring in this indentured servitude sort of uh, analog. But um, to the second point about the politics, I think it's really interesting because we watched this film 
uh, with two people who are big fans of the Netflix series The Crown, uh, my girlfriend Anna and our friend Seth. Which, if I do and, understand right, does go into the politics of this whole yes. situation quite a bit. Yeah, it, it, from what I know, I haven't seen the show, but from you know, questions that we were asking them along the, throughout the course of this film, it is the, the Crown is a lot about, uh, you know, it is the larger, like, actual, like, um, politicking of, like, the royal family and, and, and parliament and things like that. But it's also about the internal drama of the, of the royal family and, like, being very controlling of her who can do what and, and what can happen when. And that's in this film with um, Guy Pierce, King Edward. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think sure. King, King Edward wanting to marry this divorced woman and then he has to, you know, resign his his powers as king and relinquish the throne. So that's there. Um, but it, it, it is introduced uh, probably at the end of Act 1 and is wrapped up, uh, you know, probably at the end of Act 2 uh, when he relinquishes his power. Um so I, I think that it's interesting that they yeah they could have done the, these things with you know this internal royal family drama five to eight years before it was explored super thoroughly in the crown and of course not a lot is known about that like there have been multiple controversies with the crown that the screenwriters are kind of like well we're gonna take like one report of what happened because there's no official account of what happened and then the royal family's like hey that's that didn't happen and they're like yeah so whatever. Um, but I think it, it also comes from a place of, of reverence from the screenwriter. Um, David Seidler uh, wanted to write this movie for a long time. He himself struggled with... He's the screenwriter for this film, by the way. David Seidler struggled with a, uh, a stammer as a child and actually wrote to uh, Elizabeth, whom is played by Helena Bottom Carter in this film, like saying, I want to make a movie about your husband who had died at the time that he wrote her this letter. And she said, you can make the movie just do it after I die because I can't, yeah, I can't relive these memories. They're too painful. So mm -hmm. he did. Uh, and eventually he became, uh, because of, because he waited for so long, he became the oldest person to ever win best original screenplay mm -hmm. at 73 years old. So good, good, good on him there. Um, but I think it, it is a place of reverence that maybe stops him from going into like the, the, the gossipy drama things behind the scenes. Sure. So yeah, maybe potentially a, a cause there. Because ultimately the film is a very personal narrative and it's a very like, it's, it's about this, the individual struggle of Birdie to overcome this, this, you know, overcome his stammer and accept his position in the Royal yeah. family as King, not really as like, how is he fit in with the greater mechanism? Mm -hmm. Even if that's kind of what I would want. Sure. I, I agree. That's what I want. But I also think that's what the film needed, because I think a lot of your investment in this film revolves around your ability to buy into the workings of the royal family. And I just don't. And I, and I think it's interesting yeah. you say, Tanner, that the screenwriter holds a reference for, for the for the royals, because I don't personally I have no feeling for or against mm -hmm. them. But like, I don't care that Guy Pierce wants to marry a divorced woman. If anything, I think the like his sort of quote-unquote countercultural role as king is mm -hmm. interesting from audiences perspective yeah but it feels like so many of these like issues and hierarchies that feel really foreign and weird i mean obviously i'm not british but then they're, they're never explored they're just taken at face value it's taken at face value that oh the king needs to fix his speech oh mm -hmm. guy pierce cannot marry this woman oh the king must sit in this chair you can't yeah. sit in this chair like the film has nothing to say about any of this and not, mm -hmm. not that I think it's trying to, but this, and it's not propaganda because the film is not trying to propagate a message. I don't think, but it is certainly a, 
uh, let's take these things on their face and not evaluate them at all. When I think you had characters in there like Guy Pierce, you could have used as an opportunity to do so. And I think further engaged me as an audience, not only just in the in the politics of the character or the or the you know the nation's government's relation to its peoples, but in terms mm-hmm. of the actual people and the royal families and the institutions themselves. Now, obviously, it's a different movie. But when the movie you have here is so standard, I find myself like looking, oh, what if we peered around this corner of the script and went in this direction? Like, I think that there are so many threads that have pulled upon this would have been a much more interesting movie. Sure. I think that's a, I think that's a great point. However, I do have to push back on it a tiny bit because I do think they they peer around that corner like 65 percent mm. because a lot of the movie in terms of Bertie and Lionel's relationship is predicated on Lionel not having an extreme reverence for, for Bertie's position and knocking him down a sure. number of yep. pegs yeah, and, sure. and saying, no, you know, you're, you're in my, uh, I'm, I'm the one who's going to essentially yeah. save you as King. I'm going to teach you. I do have this power over you mm-hmm. because I'm knowledgeable in this situation and we are going to be equals. I'm going to call you Bertie, even that only your family calls you I'm that. I'm not going to call gonna, you your Royal Highness. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to sit in this chair, even though, you know, cause it's just a chair. Yeah. He, he does poke at these things, but I think you're right. It's not, it doesn't feel like that's a, a full uh, critique mm-hmm. of these hierarchies and these systems and these traditions and stuff. But Lionel's character, I think probably my favorite part of this whole movie, because yep. he does feel like he's pushing back a little bit and he doesn't take the King's, bullshit i mean his his bravado for Mm. being a a member of the royal family but um also pushing back against on a personal level birdies just over not uh, under confidence under self-confidence but overconfidence as a member of the royal family and also he gets you know his anger management issues and things like that like there there is an interesting personal element to that but i don't think it ever strays past the personal element it's uh, it's a critique of these systems on the level of lionel logue who's a very interesting character Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. It doesn't step outside of that. Um, yeah, I think uh, I like Je- I like Jeffrey Rush and I like uh, Lionel Logue's character. Like I said, I think uh, Checker, you bring up a great point about him. You know, taking uh, uh, King George down uh, quite a few pegs from his his royal high point in the film. Um, one of my favorite lines is because. Uh, um, Colin Firth has had his speech impediment sort of uh, analyzed by the royal physicians, as he says. Mm-hmm. And, and Lionel Logue's like, well, they're idiots. He's like, <laughs> they've been they've been knighted. And Lionel Logue's rebuttal there is, uh, well, it makes it official then. Yeah, yeah. and, there, and there's there a lot of stuff like those that. moments. A lot of stuff like that, yeah. I, I think that's a good point, but I think ultimately it boils down to King comes to understand the common man and it doesn't yeah, go much yeah. further than that. You know, that's, that's why I don't, I'm not even exactly. looking for, I'm not even, it's on a personal level, right? Yeah. I'm not even looking for a criticism of the Royal family. Really. I'm just looking for something that goes beyond observation because I think that's where a lot of it ends up being like, you're mm. sitting in my chair. Okay. He's sitting in the chair to provoke you. Like we, we, mm, yeah. we get it. Like I, 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 I like his character for what he represents as you're saying, but I don't think he's anything yeah. more than representation of sure. the pushback. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to bring up something uh, that, we, that that uh, this one won an award for, uh, and that is Tom Hooper's direction. I personally am a fan of Tom Hooper's directing style, uh, at least in this film and in Les Misérables, not necessarily in 2019's Cats because the style is not really there. But nonetheless, I think that he has a really interesting visual language that he incorporates into his films. The use of empty space when we're framing a single person where... 
they'll they'll be in like the bottom left corner and we'll have just a wall a wall that's like you know the, this sort of uh this crinkling wallpaper that you sort of get this idea of like okay lionel logue he's this he's this you know this speech therapist but he's not in the best financial position probably and um i think the camera shadow is something that's really interesting about tom hooper's direction style as well often oftentimes He'll put the camera right up in the actor's face, and you can see the camera shadow. And I think it is it, it it is this like pseudo guerrilla style of filmmaking that I find really interesting and visually engaging. Whereas I wouldn't say that if this was done by any other you know take your pick of British filmmakers who uh, who, are, who are working. Comes Kenneth Branagh, perhaps yes. Yeah, yeah I, who who this film might have gone to? Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I think that the the that kind of stuff like when we're talking about best pictures. I think that is our baseline, is doing interesting yeah. stuff with framing. And so, to me, the the interesting moments of this film is when he puts the wide-angle lens on the camera and puts yeah. that camera right next to the... And you're like, oh, this is an awkward... Mm -hmm. This is a situation where, you know, we don't... Where we feel uncomfortable. We're looking... It, we feel, the viewer feels uncomfortable because you see the, the focal length of a human face at a different focal length than you would standing that same distance away, whatever. But I, it succeeds, and I like the use of reaction shots. I think they're totally necessary. I don't think you can tell the story any other way without quick, you know, cutting around to all the people mm -hmm. looking at Birdie give it, failing to give his speeches throughout the film. So I think that that like while those elements of the visual style are interesting, I also feel like it, it's a period drama, and we're just shooting this kind of stuff. A lot of it in coverage, in a lot of. Even though, yes, we'll put the camera, we'll we'll frame the person. Or I guess I'll Don't do it over like here, that. over there here where go. my that microphone is. I'll just, you know, I'll just be framed like this for a little while. And yes, that's supposed to engender a feeling in us for how we are supposed to interpret the shot. Yeah, you could do more. You could do more. And and these other best picture winners have shown us that more is possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not phenomenal. I don't think it's stand out, but I do think it is. And this is I, this is a terrible bar to have to cross, but mm. certainly better than it could have been. I, I do think I found more moments here where I was impressed by the framing, by the cinematography, uh, which makes the framing of the very quality set design and costume design mm -hmm. um, stand out even more. And, and when you're framing um, Birdie against this wall in Lionel's apartment, that is essentially like a, a, a oil painting mm -hmm. um, of these of this mottled colors of browns and dark blues and. and and tans and such, it is like, oh, this is really rich. This is detailed. I can see the quality going in, in here, but it's not rich on the level of costume design mm -hmm. of My Fair Lady. It's not rich on the level of set design of some of these other films that we've watched. It doesn't It doesn't reach a new echelon. It's just, this is interesting. It is very well done, mm. but it's not next level, not best picture, Oscar winning next level, holy shit, well done. Yeah. I'm just lay Miz pilled, and I like Tom Hooper's directorial style. I'll give I'll give him props that that characters are not you know not squarely put on the the third lines. At least you're mm -hmm. breaking a little bit away from putting pe people's eyes on the top left you know yeah. third marker. That's like okay yeah you're you you have thought about this beyond the default, but yeah mm, by a lot more than that I don't know. I also like speaking of like cinematography and things like that. There's just a lot of like. Cool looking shots of like misty, foggy London, and like the the this the sort of soft uh, camera, uh, soft camera lens and stuff like that that lends itself to that sort of misty cinematography, like in the uh, scene we talked about earlier with uh, Birdie and Lionel sort of arguing in that big open square. 
or yeah. um like the big open field where uh uh guy pierce comes down in his biplane that's just like cool open field with like mist on in the far reaches it's cool looking that's what that's reminded us quite a lot of spencer which sure. is a better movie which is a better movie yeah yes. and also follows a similar set of characters because guess what same family yeah true um I anything th- else to add I have and some foes here on Quest for the Bestest. I have miscellaneous trivia and things that I liked, but I'll I'll refer I'll defer to anyone who has more more uh, cohesive thoughts than that. I I mean I really don't either. I feel like I'm kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. I just checked my recording time. We're we're moving at like thirty something minutes here. There's not a whole lot to talk about, frankly. But I will shout out a couple things. I I think that the like the main uh, score motif is pretty good. I like yeah. that. It, it sounds like a million other things I've heard, but it's pleasing to my ear. Uh, I also, again, I, I think that there are particular character moments here that really work. Like, I like um, when Colin Firth just lets go and he's like, bugger, fuck, Yeah, shit. that the swearing it's, scene is super yeah, fun. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's funny, and I, and I think that is what that is one of the sort of moments that I wanted more of, as I was saying before, of like, let's break it down here, and mm. let's, let's, put, let's, let's put these characters in uncomfortable situations, let's see what happens, and I think mm. we did that there, so I thought that was a good moment, but mm-hmm. ultimately, I'm, I'm now down to the point of, like, I'm trying to, like, fucking shuffle through my 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 Abram, bag of thoughts here for something Abram more wants than Colin Firth. Abram wants Colin Firth to bust it down more in this movie. That's what that I'm hearing. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. I also yes. really liked when he said manners maketh man. Oh, very nice. Little reference there. That was uh, Colin Firth, right? Yes, that's Colin Firth. Timo, Tucker, anything else? Before you know, I just ramble about things? You know, being, being the sound guy, zero complaints about the sound in this film. Sounds very good. As most films do from this time period, it's, you know, it's late, it's 2010, like everyone, it's sound engineering has like not changed since 2005. It's the same. And so when we go on from then, I expect all movies to sound good, full soundtracks, have all kinds, you know, be mixed well. I thought this movie was mixed well. I don't find particularly a huge amount of creative elements within the sound design but i also don't think the script itself lends to a lot of that i feel like the script probably had zero you know no action lines telling what what we hear it's always what we see or what the characters are doing and so you know that's not really any of the sound people's fault and that it was nominated for mixing makes sense because it is well done i think it it, you know and if your films that get nominated in other categories just kind of get defaulted into those categories i feel like I do wonder about the medium, how they filmed this, because it's 2010. The really good digital cameras had yet to come out at this time. They would, it would be a couple, like a year or less than that, until the really nice cam, like Ari Alexas and stuff that could do really high fidelity digital, were out. And so, was it filmed on film? Hmm, maybe interesting. I don't know. Um, do you want me to? I, 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 I can look for you on IMDb here. I have it pulled up. You know, you want me to do a classic uh, thing of I list off a obscure random list of words that are a camera type, and Timo tells me if they're digital or film. Do yes. it. Let's do it. Okay. Let's find out. The cameras were an Aerocam LT Zeiss Master Prime. Okay. Well, that was, you got the lens and you got the camera. Film. Though. Oh, that's oh, a film oh. camera. Yeah. Oh, that's a film camera. Okay. So yeah, Sounds probably good. thirty-five millimeter. I mean, it looks good. It's you know. It, yeah. It looks like a blockbuster. It looks like a movie that would win Best Picture, so I'm not really yeah. complaining beyond that. Um, I do have sound trivia before uh, I talk about I don't want to jump in. I have some sound trivia for our good friend Timo Nelson here. Uh, according my... to EMI recording engineer Peter Cobbin, the original Royal Microphones had been in the EMI archives for 70 years. They restored three uh, 
royal microphones that are those are microphones meant specifically for members of the royal family to make speeches on they restored three of them uh for use in the film in recording uh you know the the speeches and as well as well as the score which is really interesting mm. um yeah. the microphones were designed for king george v king george the sixth queen mary and queen elizabeth the queen mother uh and they were you know they were sort of updated to be back put back in working condition um, they were state-of-the-art in the 1930s and, and excellent even compared to much more modern equipment. Composer Alexandra Desplat and director Tom Hooper were pleased with the oh, result. I know, so the Desplat score. Yeah. That's and why felt, it sounds like Shape of Water. And felt that the slight coloring of the sound caused by the older equipment gave the recordings an authentic pa- patina of the time period. Yeah, I mean, the film has a lot of, uh, like, you know, uh, contemporary bits of recording if it's from the TV or if we're playing back the speech. And it sounds... Yeah. I mean, it's completely believable. I didn't think for one second that I was like, oh, this is modern day. Like, no, it sounds how it should, which is, yes. that's the blind. That's the bar. Uh, Tucker, anything else? No, I don't know. You throw it back to me. I don't have anything else to say. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I do have some some other miscellaneous trivia here. Um, the BBFC, which is, I presume, the British version of the MPAA, the, the rating system for films, uh, gave this movie a 15 certificate for 17 occurrences of the word fuck. On appeal, it was reduced to 12A with the information contained strong language in a speech therapy context. <laughs> yes. Um, because Tanner, because, this is because my... the king says it, it's okay. Yes, exactly. In, 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 over here at the good old MPAA land, right? It's you get one fuck in PG thirteen, right? One non-sexual fuck, that is. Okay. Yes. Sure, a clinical fuck. A clinical fuck, as it were. <laughs> um, but I do. I just have some miscellaneous things that I like. Um, Michael Gambon as King George V in that scene where he's suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. That's a great like little scene for him and he does a great job and um i also noticed i picked up a little thing that in the background of that uh there's like there's like a ticking clock or no it's it's when they go to visit him on his deathbed after he has died there's a ticking clock as colin firth walks out of the room and it's like the clock is ticking for him to become the king it's a neat little thing i will interject for a second there this is a weird like harry potter reunion actually Because you got yeah, Dumbledore, of, yeah. you got you got Bellatrix, and you have um, Peter Pettigrew there too. Yeah, why, exactly. Why didn't you oh, realize? That's true. Yeah. Jean pointed that out to me. Yeah. Um. But oh yeah, and they do the marbles in the mouth thing, like My Fair Lady. That's yes, a little another connection do. between My Fair Lady and this film. He doesn't but eat one though. He does not eat mm-hmm. one. They should have made, forced uh, Colin Firth to shove a marble down his throat. God, I hope the yes. doctor never pulls out a jar of marbles and says, all right, we're fitting all these in your mouth. I just hope that never happens. <laughs> I, I have a hard time believing that that is still a common practice today, Timo. It can be if you'd like it to be. Please, I, I, I got some. I can go get a sack of marbles. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank we can you. make arrangements. Maybe next time. Maybe next time, Tucker. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. All right, well, should we just give this a score? Because then we'll Let's think do of, it. Yeah. We'll, we'll think about it after we give it a score. Let's move on to the next movie and forget we ever reviewed this. <laughs> let's be honest. Number. I got my number queued. I got my number two. I got my number. I'm a little late to the party. Are you guys ready? Okay. Three, yes. two, yep. one, go. Okay. The number is 6.1. Almost exactly where I would have predicted it to go. Not mm-hmm. surprising in the slightest. A 6.1, though, is going to slot it in between Rain Man and Green Book, just uh, at the spot 52 on our list. The point breakdown, 
Um, starting, uh, we'll start from the top. T uh, Tucker, you gave it a 6.8. Tanner gave it a 6.7. Abram gave it a 5.9. And I gave it a flat 5. So, there you go. Any of you particularly feel really strongly about the decimal point and want to explain how or why? Nope. Yeah, no. I, I think seen this that is a usually, that usually I'm pretty confident with this is my score and it reflects this for this reason. But th this is, you know, I, I it's a good movie. Yeah. My score reflects that it's a good movie, but certainly not anything fantastic. Yeah. The, the one, the one thing I would say is that my, my, uh, one of my film professors right now is not really a fan of the Oscars, but he, he, he gave a quote to our paper which I really liked, some along the lines of like, the Oscars are a great place to start being interested in film, but it's not where to, where you should end. Like there is so much, the the message being there's so much more there, right? And I think that that sentiment comes from things like this winning Best Picture. Because there is no doubt in my mind that if you look at those other nominees, there are films that are much more interesting, right? Yeah. And of course, mm -hmm. even those nominees don't rep, rep, represent everything that happens with indie film and mm -hmm. the stuff that gets snubbed and everything, right? But I think the Oscars can do a better job than this promoting film that does something a little bit more daring or interesting. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that this just does none of that. Well, yeah. and no, I agree. luckily, we are, you know, I guess this was 11, 11 years ago was when this film won. And so... Mm -hmm. Today, nowadays, I feel like Oscars have improved at least in that category, and, and uh, uh, not beyond a little. We've bit. been on a good run, yeah. Frankly, True. been on a good run, and so luckily, you know, we don't need we don't really need to go into who produced this movie, but uh, yes, oh, purchased well, another yes, Oscar. Point. Fair point. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's a great point, Timo. Yeah. Anyway, any who's will be the, the, where will this this goes above what and below what Timo? Just a reminder. Yeah, it's going to go at the 52nd spot on the list, uh, right in between. So it's going to go below Rain Man and above Green Book. Sure. All right. Yeah. When we put a movie in one of these just weird positions, it makes me realize how big this list actually is. Yeah, there was a, we had a big list here. <laughs> There's a lot of movies that it feels like we just have not talked about in forever. Because we've been doing this a long time, all things considered. Yeah, yeah. Well, like a year and a half, right? Something, something like it. Something like that, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's find out where we're moving next, though. Yeah, let's do it. Please, something, 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 at least, for our next film. Yeah, How about? I really hope so. I hope we get to watch a movie Spin next week. Spin wheel just goes in empty. <laughs> we'll just no. keep spinning. Oh, perpetually. All right. Are you ready, Tanner? Uh, should I stammer my way through this one? I always propose, like, <laughs> bits that I should do, and then I never do them, so maybe I should this just... This feels insensitive. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Can you do a British accent for it, though? <laughs> You have Australian accent? Oh. Uh, there wasn't one in this movie, so he shouldn't. Yeah. I'll, I'll do one in in remembrance of what could have been. <laughs> well, well, what's your deal? Give us a movie that makes us squeal. Is it on digital? Is it on real? Well, well, what's your deal? It was I'm, more of a Jason Statham, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. was a Jason yeah. Statham right there. We are really given a tour de force of all of our accent abilities in this yes. last couple weeks. 21. We're being transported through time. Yes, yes, there we go. That's 21. Right. 21. Tucker, what is film number 21 for us? Film 21 is going to give us something pretty interesting to talk about mm. because this is the only film to win from maybe the director of all time. Uh, starring George Sanders, Joan Fontaine, and Laurence Olivier. We're going to be looking at the 1940 Best Picture winner directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Rebecca. Oh, Rebecca. oh, let's go. This is this is the Hitchcock movie that won Best Picture, and is it one of the best Hitchcock movies? 
not necessarily, in my opinion, but I'm interested to give it a, a more critical analytical look through Here's the lens what... of Best Picture winning and Quest for the Bestest. Here's what I will say, uh, because Tucker and I watched this probably, what, over a year ago now? Two years for ago, sure. something like that, yeah. Um, and we, don't, we, we were both pretty middling on it, but I was t- I took a Alfred Hitchcock course, Alfred Hitchcock and his legacy mm-hmm. film course uh, this semester, and we watched Rebecca again, and I gained a brand new, quite highly uh, reverent appreciation for Rebecca. So I'm excited to revisit it once again. Oh, man. This is very compelling to me because I have only seen Psycho and Rear Window. I would like to see more mm-hmm. of his movies. Yes. Yep. Now I would have awesome. rather seen a rope or vertigo, but I guess whatever yeah, the dumb well, fuck yeah. movie this is, we'll have to settle <laughs> for now. I am, Good. you know, I've seen quite a few Hitchcock movies, so I'm looking forward to seeing. How does this one fit in? Another one. And is it to seeing another one? I haven't seen this yet. Yep, true. And um, yeah, what are how do Hitchcock's poetics really reveal themselves in this film? I think we will get into it. Looking forward to it. Hopefully we are a little more awake next week and the film inspires <laughs> a little bit more of more conversation. Although we, I think we did not fail in that regard at all this time around. Thank you for joining me yeah. in discussing the King's speech. One question to leave us out. Is the film about the King's speech, you know, or is it about mm-hmm. the speech? Make sure the, the unfortunate truth is that somebody thinks that it's both and that that's really clever. Yes. Uh, I will say, make sure next week not to watch the Netflix version of Rebecca with Army Hammer. Don't watch that version. Watch the original. I know it can be confusing sometimes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> keep your blinders on. Keep it. A, yes. Keep it tuned to Hitchcock. Avoid Vision. Army Hammer. Avoid Army Hammer at all. Especially costs. in a dark alley, if he's if he's got a bottle of barbecue sauce. Yes. We don't want any of that. Oh Lord. Oh man. And, and hopefully by the time we reach around to next week and we talk about Rebecca, none of us have succumbed to Army Hammer. Give the old reach round, uh, Rebecca. <laughs> mm, all right. Let's wrap and with it up. That, we'll see you next week. Peace. <laughs>